Let me invite you this morning to turn with me to Romans chapter 15. We're going to Romans, uh, the book of Romans. You have the four gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you have Acts, and then you have Romans, the book of Romans. So we're going to go there in the New Testament this morning, and we're going to go to chapter 15 uh, of that book, and, and we're going to uh, look at what it is that, uh, that God wants to teach us through the reading and preaching of that passage here this morning. Uh, we are continuing in a series that we started two weeks ago called Shift, and we're talking about how God has offered to us through Christ uh, an invitation out of the ordinary to live lives uh, full of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we've talked about how God wants to pour his power into our lives and that we, through this encounter with Christ Jesus, we are different. We, are, we have been made different. We have been created different. We've been created new uh, because of what Christ has done in our, our life. Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. It was on the cross that he died. It was on the cross that he was crucified. It was on the cross that he bled, and he bled out to atone for our sins. And so that is the gospel story of Jesus, and we, we know that that's what Christ did for us, but he didn't just simply die on the cross that we would have that... Uh, that, that, that means of salvation, even though that's an important thing for us to know about what the gospel teaches us, but he also died that we would be full of life and that we would be full of power. And he even promised us that through salvation, we have the Holy Spirit of God who lives within us and resides within us and leads us and guides us and, 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 and just challenges us in ways that we could only imagine. And so, uh, this is what we've been talking about in this series here this morning, and, um, and this morning we're going to turn to a passage in Romans here. This Romans uh, is a letter, it's an epistle written by the Apostle Paul to those believers who are living in Rome, uh, and so he's writing to them to proclaim the glories of God, the glories of Christ Jesus. He wants uh, the world to know through uh, not only his preaching, but through the letters that he is writing that, that God is good. We just sang about that just a few moments ago, and, and we would all give praise and honor and testimony to that, that for those of us who know him. And so he's writing this letter to bring glory to God, to lift up high the name of Jesus. And as he's writing this letter, uh, we, we also know that Paul, being himself a Roman citizen, had a real passion for those who were living there. And so he's writing this letter with care. He's writing this letter with with a real heart for them to understand the truths in which he is presenting to them. And in the first about one to 12 chapters, it's, it's very heavy on theology. In fact, the whole letter is, is very heavy on theology, and he, he's offering a lot of theological truth to us. He's helping us understand who Christ Jesus is. He's helping us understand, uh, you know, uh, exactly who God is and, and, and uh, so we can know him and understand him better. But by the time he gets to Romans chapter 13, he begins to make a shift and he begins to talk about how we as disciples of Christ Jesus should relate to others. He begins to talk about our responsibility or our role in relating to those of authority. He talks about how those who are on the outside of our faith, how we should relate to these that are living outside of our faith. And so he's writing this letter and he's helping us to understand everything we need to know about who Christ is and about salvation and about redemption and, and, and all that, but he's also wanting us to know how it is that we should 
relate to others. And it's all because he cares so deeply for him. You know, I don't know that there's a lot of evidence that there were a lot of problems uh, with, with the Romans relating to anyone, not at least at this time, but he is writing to merely say, our focus is on Christ. God has called us to be who he wants us to be. Our identity is in him. And as we grow and, and become sanctified by the Holy Spirit of God and through Christ as disciples or as believers, uh, then, then we need to also know how we can take what we have been given and use that for his glory, how we can take what we have been given and to relate to others in this world in which we live. And so Paul is going to make that shift starting with verse 13. And so we, we begin to see this. Uh, and, and it becomes very important to understand why it is that Paul is writing this. The, the, the reality that he wants to encourage the church to live lives that are worthy of the calling in which Christ has given them as disciples or as believers. You know, over the years, uh, my mindset on how uh, or what makes a church great has really sort of changed. I, I think in the early days of my ministry, uh, I used to have sort of a different view of what a really a great church was. And, and I think over time, as I've, I've, I've studied the Word and I've, I've just spent a lot of time in prayer and just uh, preaching and, and ministering, uh, I began to realize that, that I, I, in many ways, I just kind of saw things wrong. I had a not a, not a bad perspective, but I just had a, a little bit of a different perspective. And, and so that mindset began to change over the years. What doesn't make a church great is how many a church has in attendance on Sunday morning, okay? That's not what constitutes a great church. What, consti- what does not constitute a great church is not how great the, the building is or how, uh, how the programs are programs of quality. That doesn't constitute a great church. It's not about how great the band is or if the preacher's a pretty good guy. That, that's not what constitutes a great church. What constitutes a great church is the heart of the people in which attend that church, the heart of the people in which are gathered in a place. And here's what we're going to be looking at today because it becomes so important. I believe what really constitutes a church to be a great church is how that church operates as one. In other words, with a spirit of unity, fighting for, if necessary, the spirit of unity, remaining as one. And we're going to see the importance of this. We're going to see that what the Apostle Paul does in this letter to the, this, this small passage that we're going to read out of Romans 15 is that the Apostle Paul says, if you want to see the evidence of Christ among a people, then just look at how well they are connected together with Christ as the center. And so we're going to see this. And I think it's really cool because last week we were talking about becoming Christ-like. We talked about what does it mean for us as believers or followers of Christ Jesus to become Christ-like? Today, we're going to be looking at the evidences of Christ-likeness. So look with me, if you will, at Romans chapter 15. We're starting with verse 1. And the Apostle Paul, he's writing to those whom he loves. He's writing to those whom he's passionate about. He's writing to them to help them understand how to relate to others. And this is what he says here, starting with verse 1. He says, we who are strong, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak 
and not to please ourselves. He says in verse two, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for your instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may be one voice glorifying God and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so here's what happens. So Paul is writing to this church in Rome, and he begins to lay out these truths that become very important for, for the believer or for the disciple of Christ Jesus. There's a, there's a, a group of, of people who have come to know Christ Jesus, and they're living there in Rome, and so he's writing to this local gathering, and as he's writing to this group of people, he is encouraging them to know God. He wants them to understand who God is, but he now begins to make a shift, and he says, as you relate to other people. In other words, as a believer or as a follower of Christ Jesus, living your life in a community that doesn't know Jesus, how is it that you are supposed to relate to other people. And he gives us some important truths here. I wish we had time for all of them that I've, I've, I wrote down. I, I jotted down 40, but we only have time for 38 points this morning. But the, uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm going to give you two because I, I think that's probably all we have time to dive into this morning. But, but there are two, I think, truths that the Apostle Paul lays out for us that become very important for us to understand. If we are going to be the church Listen to this because this is important. If we're going to be the church that lives out our life allowing Christ to be manifested in us as we continue to reach the lost of this community and beyond, which is what we are called to do. Now, I think we would all agree with that. We would know that God has called us to go therefore and make disciples. He has called us to be his witnesses in our Jerusalem, which would be right here in Valdosta, our Judea Samaria, which would be outside of this community and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And so we, we have a mission that we've been given. We have a calling that has been placed. And so we understand that, but it becomes very important that we understand what it is that the apostle Paul is saying about how we are to carry that out and how we are to carry that out is as one who has been united with Christ Jesus in the center. And so that's what we're going to be looking at here this morning. The first truth that I want to offer to you here this morning is this. We have an obligation to bear with our neighbors. And I say bear with because that's what exactly what we see in Scripture. I didn't, I didn't do some fancy wordsmithing and sort of translate that for you. I just took it right out of God's word and that's what we're gonna look at here. And in fact, the apostle Paul, he says here, he says in verse one, we who are strong, we have an obligation. In other words, he says, as disciples of Christ Jesus, we have been given a responsibility. And he says that responsibility 
is to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Then he goes on in verse two to say this, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Look at this, because this is important, to build him up, to build him up. And so what he's saying is, He's saying very clearly to us, as disciples of Christ Jesus, because you have been transformed by a Holy Spirit, because you've been transformed by the power of God, you are much stronger than those whom you may come in contact with. And, and so your faith is stronger, your belief is stronger. You know, who you are in Christ Jesus, your identity has given you, has, is, 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 is there because you have been given a gift from God this gift of salvation, this process of sanctification, and as God is doing incredible things in your life, you have an obligation to bear with those. And, and here's, here's the way I picture it, with those who are hard to bear with, right? With those who are sometimes disagreeable. With those who are sometimes a little bit hard to get along with. That's what I think of when I think about, in other words, I think what Paul's saying is, as disciples of Christ Jesus, you have to put up with people that you may not necessarily want to put up with. And this is your responsibility as a disciple of Christ Jesus. Now, you see how this becomes so important because we would rather just talk about them, wouldn't we? Maybe if we talk about them enough, maybe they'll just change on their own. But no, he says this, he says, he says what your responsibility, what your obligation is, is to bear with them, to put up with them, to deal with them, to all for the sake of what? Of helping them, to grow them, to build them up. It, it, you know, it, it's this idea of, it, you know, if you have a problem with somebody or somebody is, is doing things in a way that maybe you wouldn't do, and instead of, instead of in the church, now he's talking to disciples, he's talking to believers in Christ Jesus, but instead of in the church just going out and talking about this, slandering this person, gossiping about this person, what the apostle Paul, and this is where maybe Maybe for a lot of people in Christianity today, there needs to be a huge shift, but he's saying, instead of doing that, why don't you try going over and helping them? You see how this can become so important in the life of the church. Now remember, this is only if we want to be used by God, if we want to experience the fullness of God, if we want to be changed by God. I mean, you know, I mean, Jesus said, abide in me and I'll abide in you. And, and you know, so this is, I mean, we can go on and live our life and just disobedience to God, but I don't think that's the route, is it? Paul says, you know, you have this responsibility because of what Christ Jesus has done in your heart, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you have an obligation to bear with those who you have to bear with to help them and to build them up. Now, here's, here's what we see as we continue to read. It says in verse three, for Christ did not please himself. And I love what Paul does here because here's what he's saying. He's saying, this isn't my words that are just going out to you in the form of a letter to say, hey, you need to, to think about this. You need to consider this. No, he points to Jesus. And he says, in the same way that God is expecting us to 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 uh, build one another up, to bear with one another in the same way that God is expecting us to do that as believers. Before you start thinking, this is my idea, 
what Paul does, and I love this, he points to Jesus, he says, because that's how Christ was. So you wanna be like Christ, look at how Christ relates to other people. Look at how Christ bears with others. You, you remember the old verse that tells us this truth, while we were yet still sinners, Christ went to the cross and he died for us. I mean, do you realize just how profound that truth is for us? While we were yet still sinners. In other words, while we were an enemy with God, chasing after our own pleasures, Jesus over here is considering us and all of our sin and all of our worldliness and our abandonment to God and all of that, Jesus is over here and he is bearing with us. He is putting up with us, and not only putting up with us, but Jesus goes to the cross, he dies on the cross, his blood is spilled on the cross for the atonement of your sin and for the atonement of my sin. And so Paul says, as you consider putting up with other people, as you consider bearing with those whom you've been brought together with in the life of the church, Consider what Jesus has done for you. A powerful truth, isn't it? A powerful thing to consider. He says, you are the disciples of Christ. Then be like Christ by bearing with all. I love in Matthew 22 the story that we see here, we see this expert of the law who comes to Jesus and he tests Jesus. If you know the story, this, this, uh, this expert, he comes to Jesus and he says, uh, he says, I got this, boys. I'm gonna discredit Jesus. I'm gonna show, Je show you that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. And so he comes to him and he asks him one question. He says, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of all? And in one statement, Jesus summed up the entire law that God gave to Moses. In one statement, Jesus says this. He says, love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And then he says this, and I love this. He says, and the second is just like it. I'm sure this, this expert of law said, no, only ask for one, you know. But Jesus says, no, 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 buddy. You, you asked for it, you're about to get it. Here's the first and greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Powerful, isn't it? Think about that for a moment. And so here we have this story of Jesus making reference to the neighbor uh, and loving our neighbor. And, and in this passage that we're reading, Paul is writing and he says, and not to please ourselves, let each of us please his what? His neighbor for his good and for building him up. In other words, bear with one another, bear with each other that you may be able to help in the process of elevating a weaker believer or maybe even someone who doesn't even know Jesus, but elevating a, a neighbor to knowing and ultimately glorifying Christ with their life. In other words, you become a catalyst for life change. And so Jesus says, 
The two greatest commandments, love God and love people. Love God and love people. Paul says, you want to be like Jesus? Love your neighbor. Do for him, even if it means you having to put up with him. Even if it means you're having to bear with him. And so there's a strong message to deal with this. And, and probably as we look at this, we probably wonder, well, who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Well, let me just say this. It can be your life group leader. It can be the guy that lives next door. It can be a coworker, a fellow student. It can be a pastor. It can be a ministry leader. It can be a Muslim that lives down the road. I think when Jesus says love God and love people, he's not excluding anybody, amen? He's not leaving anybody out. The word neighbor here is used to refer to anybody who's not you. That's who he's, he's talking about. Love God, love the guy next to you, love the guy across the street, love the girl down the road. I mean, maybe not love the girl down, I mean, you know what I mean, but... I mean, love all people, right? You just gotta love all people. And so he's challenging us to love God, love people. These are the two greatest commandments. And so as we think about our responsibility as disciples of Christ Jesus to make an impact on a dark world, and we live in a very dark world in case you haven't noticed, then our responsibility is first and foremost loving God, but then loving each other if we're ever gonna make a difference in the world. And we know that's where he's headed because we have the rest of the verses we haven't looked at yet. We have all 38 points that I, I think I am gonna go because you're the second service and we don't have to, no, I'm kidding. It's beautiful when you think about it. It's really amazing to think about what is happening here. You know, when, when we got ready to launch Cross Point Church and um, this is before we really even started gathering anybody. I mean, it was just, really it was nothing more than just a calling on mine and Linnell's life to plant a new church in town. I started talking to different people here in Valdosta, and one of the people I was talking to was a guy named Mike Whalen, who was the BCM director at VSU. Uh, he was a campus minister, if you will, uh, at VSU. And I, I had told Mike I was, I was planning a church, and I was very excited. I mean, it was just me and Linnell and our two girls, and we were getting ready to plant a church. And, and he says, man, let's go have lunch. I want to hear more about it. And so we went and had lunch, and when we showed up, he had a book in his hand. And I'll never forget, he said, hey, I brought you this book, and I, I looked at it, and I, I got it. I said, well, thank you, man. And, and he said, man, you ought to read that book. That really seems like it's just in line with what you're talking about and the vision that God has given you for Cross Point Church. And I remember looking at it, and it was a book by an author and a pastor named John Burke, and the name of the book was No Perfect People Allowed. A great book. If, you, if you're looking for a book to read, you need to pick this one up. No perfect people allowed. And I remember when he handed me the book, he says, David, it's gonna be really hard. Because I, I told him, I said, man, I love the title. I just, I mean, that title is just all what we're about. He says, well, hang on to that because it's gonna be more, uh, it's gonna be harder and harder every day as your church grows and as you go to keep that the focus. There, he, and I'll never forget these words. He said, there are too many churches today that have built their wall around their own self-righteousness, Right? They've built this wall to keep the people out because somehow, someway, they've come to this idea that they are perfect in all their ways. And he says, it's going to be a real challenge to you. Always keep the mindset, no perfect people allowed. 
In other words, he was saying to me, he says, you've got to be about all the people. You've got to be about loving all the people. And you've got to welcome in whoever walks into your presence. And that's who we've become. I believe that's who we are. I think there's been a lot of great intentionality that's gone into that by a lot of people. All of our staff and our ministry leaders, we, we, we continue to strive to be the church that says to our community, no perfect people allowed, because we recognize that none of us in this room are perfect. Is anybody in this room perfect? By the way, I just need to, I need to know. Oh, <laughs> no. She started clapping. She's like, nope, not me. Nobody, I think she thought I was going a different direction with that question. But anyway, is there anybody in this room, you know, because you're not allowed. I just want to. We all recognize that we're so far from perfect, don't we? You know, I, I look at Cross Point Church, and I look at a lot of churches all over the, all over the world, and this is what I know. I, the, the church and its authenticity and, and what it's supposed to be is like a mosaic, isn't it? It's like a mosaic. It's, a mosaic is, is a bunch of broken pieces that have been assembled together to be this beautiful piece of art. And that's what I, when I think of the church, that's what I think of a mosaic, because the church should be like a mosaic. The church is, is made up of a bunch of broken people who have been redeemed and restored by the power and presence of Christ in their life, called together and gathered together by a holy and righteous God so that we can be an influence to the world. Not because we're perfect or righteous, but because Jesus is. Amen? And that's what Paul's saying here. Here's the, here's the most beautiful thing. With Jesus, and let me just say this to every one of you here this morning. With Jesus, you are both a masterpiece and a work in progress all at the same time. You are both a masterpiece. God looks at you and he thinks you are beautiful but he also recognizes that you are a work in progress. Now, if that's the way Jesus sees every single one of us, then why wouldn't we see others in the same way? We're all a work in progress, right? We're all broken people who've been redeemed and restored by the grace of God as believers, as, as followers of Christ. Here's what I think as I think about this point that we We've been looking at this truth that we have an obligation to bear with our neighbors. Here's what I, here's what I was thinking. If, if there's ever a time where you have a thought that somebody has failed, then you should be asking yourself, what can I do to help them? Not criticize them. Not slander them. Not destroy their reputation. Not walk out on them. Paul says to build them up. We as believers in Christ Jesus, as disciples, we have an obligation to bear with our neighbor. Here's the second truth I want to give you here this morning. We have an obligation to be one. We have an obligation to be one. Paul continues in this passage by writing, and he says some very powerful things, and I, I want to show you this this morning, starting with verse 5. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Now, there's a lot that I like about what he just said right there. But here's what I, here's what I love, and I, I don't even have the, I'm just gonna give you this. This is just something that came to me 
as I was preaching in the first service. I love this. May the God of endurance and encouragement. Let me, let me ask you this. When you're going through one of your greatest struggles and you turn to God and you, you're praying to God and you're, you're, you're hoping for God, in the midst of your struggle, what is the thing that you're most hoping for? You're hoping that God will help you get through the circumstance, right? If it's a bad situation, if it's a bad circumstance, you're hoping that, that you can endure this suffering, this anxiety, this uncertainty, this pain. You're hoping that God will help you get through it, and somehow you will go from be, feeling very low and maybe discouraged to feeling filled with joy and being happy, right? And so when we find ourselves in the most difficult times of our life, when we find ourselves and we're really struggling, really the two things that we're longing for in that moment in our life is endurance and encouragement. And so Paul says, as he's writing to the Romans, he says this, he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement. I love that because he's given us another glimpse of Jesus, isn't he? He's saying, this is who your God is. And, and I want to remind you of this this morning. He is saying to us that Jesus cares deeply for you. And in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your problems, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your hardship, he is still the God of endurance and encouragement. Now, that was just a little side note. It has nothing to do with the rest of the message here, but that's I just thought that was so cool as I was looking at that and, and just thinking about it. But here, here's what I want to say here about this. Paul, he does the same thing he does with the first truth in which he lays out this obligation, and the obligation this time is to be one. Now, think about this. He's talking about unity, right? He's talking about coming together and being bound together as a faith family. We're, we're not, we have gathered in this place, and, and I know that there's a lot of individuality in this room, but we are brought here for a purpose. We are brought here for something to take place in our life that is bigger than ourselves, and it begins with God binding us together with Christ being the glue. We are one in Christ Jesus, and so he is speaking of unity as he begins to write this passage and reveal to us the things that we need to know. And so he gives us this thing. He points out that we have an obligation to be one, but then again, he points to Jesus as the example. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He says, you want to be Christ-like? Then be like Jesus. And Jesus has invited you in as one. We, therefore, need to be committed to the one, right? We need to be committed to being one in Christ Jesus. The Bible describes a lot about unity as the evidence of Christ's likeness. All throughout Philippians is a book that was written that almost deals with this entirely. I mean, it deals with, with, with unity and the importance of unity in such an incredible way. But I love what we see in John 13 because we see one of what I believe is one of the most powerful and rich stories of Christ Jesus and his disciples that we have in all of Scripture. In John 13, uh, we begin to see a story, and this is just after Jesus has eaten with uh, his disciples. So he's just had supper with them, and one of the most incredible things that Jesus does in this story is after supper, Jesus, it says, he takes off his outer garments, and he lays them to the side, and he picks up a towel, and he comes over to the disciples, and he begins to wash 
the feet of the disciples. Now, as you can imagine, they were pushing back on that. Maybe it was a little strange to them, but it was an act of humility for Jesus to do this. And even though they pushed back and they said, no, it should be us that's washing your feet, he says, no, we're going to do this. And so he, he washed their feet. And then after the foot washing, after that took place, then he identifies among them a betrayer. And that betrayer is Judas. And so he, 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 he submits to them. He humbles himself before them. Then he brings up and he identifies that there is a betrayer among them. There is one in the disciples who are going to betray Jesus. And he identifies that person as Judas. And at that moment, Judas gets up and he walks out of the room. Now, what do you think Jesus would have to say to his disciples after all of that? This is what he says. In John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you. Commandment, just in case you're wondering, is responsibility, it's obligation, it's all the same. He says, this I give to you. He's not saying, here's a good suggestion. Jesus is saying, by his own authority, this is how you should live your life as disciples of mine. He says this, he says, I, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are one, are to love one another. And then he says this in verse 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let me just say this. The greatest testimony that we could ever have to a dark community. In other words, I'm talking to those about those outside of these walls who don't know Christ, the greatest testimony that we could collectively offer to our community is unity. Jesus tells his disciples, love me like I've loved you. How does Jesus love us unconditionally? Without expectations. He just loves us. And he tells his disciples, this is the way that the community, this is the way others will know that you belong to me. This is the evidence of your salvation. This is the evidence that you walk with me. It is in how you love one another. A powerful thing that Jesus would say. He says in verse six, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I saw a post this week on Facebook, and it said this. It said, do not judge my story by the chapter that you just walked in on. I love that. Do not judge my story by the chapter that you just walked in on. I love that post because I think it, it speaks a lot into what we're talking about. So often, we place expectations on each other of perfection, knowing that Jesus is the only one who's perfect. We place expectations of righteousness on each other when we know that Jesus is the only one who is righteous. We are only made righteous through Christ. And so here Paul is saying, listen, we have, an, we have to understand there's a real need for us to love one another. There's a real need for unity in the church. There's a real obligation to bear with one another, even in the midst of it being difficult to bear with others. 
as disciples, this is who Jesus has made us to be. Now, I'm going to close out with this. Let me just say this. In our pursuit of Christ's likeness, we can ask ourselves this. Who, what, when, and where? And I want to tell you what I mean by all four of those. As you pursue Christ's likeness, ask yourself who. And the question that goes along with that is, who are you? Who are you? And who do you model your life after? You know, one of the beautiful things about who we are in Christ Jesus is that we are no longer who we used to be. Amen? How many of you would give testimony to life change in your life because of Jesus? Amen? Jesus Christ has transformed our life. And our identity is no longer our own. Our identity is no longer in who we used to be. It's in who we are today. And so we start off by asking the question, who are we or who are you? And and so identity becomes hugely important. And we have to ask this question because what we're wondering is, does our identity line up more with the world or with Christ? We have to ask ourselves this. I love Galatians 3.20, which says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our identity is no longer in who we are. It's in Christ Jesus. As believers in Christ Jesus, we should be Christ-like. And the important thing that Paul is saying here to the church is the importance of unity as we consider that. The second word that we ask is what. And what I want to say about that is this, is what are you going to do with what Christ has given you? Every one of us that just applauded because we have a testimony of the glories of Christ in our life, that our life has been transformed by the power and the presence of God, we've been given a gift, haven't we? We've been given an amazing gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness. We've been given an amazing grace where we can experience the fullness of God, where we don't have to stay down when we're beat up. We can be filled with joy. We don't have to continue to suffer knowing that Christ is, is, cares deeply for us, that he is concerned for us, that he loves us unconditionally. We don't have to live in discouragement when the joy of Christ surrounds us because our identity is in Christ. We have been given one of the greatest gifts, but let me ask you, what are you going to do with it? You're going to hang on to it? You're going to keep it to yourself? That's not what these passages are talking about. They're talking about giving away the greatest gift that you've ever received. They're talking about giving away what Christ has done for you, giving that to someone else that they can experience the same greatness in Jesus that you have experienced. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 and 6 says this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul means by that. He says, you've been given the greatest gift 
And that is, is that Christ has shined his light into your heart. And then he says this, now go out and let that light shine in the darkness. So you know who you are in Christ. The next question is, what are you going to do with what he has given you or what he is in you? The third one is this, when? And all I've got for this is this, when will you let go and let God? When will you let go of the things of this world? When will you let go of selfishness and self-centeredness? When will you let go of the pleasures of this world and embrace the fullness of Christ and all that he has to offer? When will you let the outcome that you desire, when will you let go of that and let God manifest himself in your life that you may be used as an instrument in the Redeemer's hand for his glory? And finally, the where. The question I have for where is, where will you stand when confronted with the temptation to be divisive? Where will you stand? Every one of us, every single day, has a choice to make when we are confronted with the temptations that we face, don't we? Every one of us are faced every day with temptation. And we have the choice to either hang on to the world or to follow Jesus hang on to the world or let it go for the sake of righteousness where do you stand when confronted with these choices Ephesians 6 6 and I'm done says in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one There's an enemy that we are fighting that would hope more than anything that this place would become a place of disagreement, of discouragement, of division, of separation. There's an enemy who would love to see nothing else than for us to be torn apart in anger toward one another in differences of Uh, views of, uh, of differences where we just don't agree with one another. I would have done it this way. She wanted to do it that way. There's an enemy who wants to rob us of everything that God wants to accomplish in this place by tearing us apart. And one of the greatest evidences of Christ's likeness that is presented in God's word is for us to remain strong in unity to be one with each other in Christ Jesus just a moment our band's going to come out and they're going to lead us in that last song and it's more than just the last song it's a time for us to think about what it is that God has spoken into our hearts it's a time for us to respond to whatever it is that God would have us to respond and every single one of us in this room will most likely respond differently but God has a way bringing us even closer together than we've ever been. God has a way of restoring every relationship, of making those relationships even tighter than they've ever been. And God has a way, as as he pours his light into our hearts, and we walk out of these doors and into a dark world, of 
allowing that light to shine brightly in the darkness that others may know.